Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks for tuning in here for this episode of the show. A really good conversation coming up with John Caney, the executive director of Reinvent Albany, a government watchdog and reform group focused on the state capitol. And of course, with the transition of power from Governor Andrew Cuomo to Governor Kathy Hochul, a lot to discuss with John, his organization, one of the leading good government groups, talking about how to improve governance in New York, everything from bringing more transparency to state government to reforming the ethics system, uh, campaign finance reform, and much more. A very interesting conversation with John that includes discussion of how the new governor, Kathy Hochul, can avoid conflicts of interest and really change the overall culture in state government and what that will look like and much more. If you've missed any of the recent episodes of this show, Max Politics, find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. I've had some really good conversations, including guests like City Council candidate Tiffany Caban, State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, Deputy Leader of the State Center Michael Gennaris. We've also had interesting conversations about getting to know Kathy Hochul with a couple of journalists who've covered her closely, reflections on Andrew Cuomo's reign and resignation with some great guests, and recently a discussion about the state's $2.1 billion excluded workers fund with a couple of leaders who helped create that fund in state government that now needs to get that money out the door similar to how the state's troubled uh, rental assistance money has not been doled out and Governor Kathy Hochul promising to get all those billions of dollars where they need to go in short order. So some really good discussions here on Max Politics in recent weeks and months. Find them all wherever you get your podcast or at the Gotham Gazette site. And here's my conversation with John Caney. And happy to welcome now to Max Politics, John Caney, the executive director of Reinvent Albany. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. So uh, we have a lot to get to today with you. We want to talk about basically how New York can have potentially better governance under a new governor. Uh, but before we get into a whole lot we want to discuss, just give us a brief introduction to who you are and what Reinvent Albany does. Sure. Reinvent Albany is an organization that started uh, 10 years ago uh, that's supported and funded by uh, folks associated with New York's livable streets movement, bicycling, walking, public transit, who were frustrated with uh, what they perceived as Albany's interference in New York City's dynamism and um, has subsequently expanded our mission uh, to include everything from freedom of information law and open government and open data to voting rights, uh, anti-corruption, business subsidies, and uh, accountable public authorities. And I'm the uh, founding executive director. I've been on board since 2010, and we have a staff of five folks, uh, most of whom are in the five boroughs. We typically have somebody in Albany, though right now we do not. Okay. And so um, we're talking here on Wednesday, September 1st, a little bit before or as the state legislature is going into a special session called by Governor Kathy Hochul. Let's get into that in a moment. But over your 10 years working, uh, leading reInvent Albany, that's obviously pretty much overlap with the tenure of Governor Andrew Cuomo. And we obviously saw him resign in disgrace recently. 
What's your overview of the Cuomo legacy on good government, on government ethics, transparency, um, and the issues that you focus on? Uh, disastrous and uh, completely cynical. I would say uh, acidly cynical. I mean, this is a, a governor who ruled through uh, fear, both on a personal level and institutional level, and manipulated the press and the narrative to uh, deceive New Yorkers broadly, but also to uh, get otherwise well-intentioned people to do bad things many times. So, you know, the, the governor... Uh, uh, finally was forced out of office because of sexual harassment, but his uh, misdeeds are are lengthy. I mean, extending back to uh, manipulating the Moreland Commission and basically getting rid of it uh, when it started subpoenaing his major funders. Uh, he uh, lied about COVID-19 nursing home deaths, which has now been reported on and exhaustively uh, revealed by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and others, and of course, the Attorney General's report. And um, his top uh, lieutenant and closest uh, ally, Joe Prococo, is now in federal prison for a bribery scandal that involved uh, over a billion dollars in public funds in a gigantic bid rigging scandal in upstate New York uh, that also took down Cuomo's uh, high technology czar and implicated the SUNY Research Foundation and SUNY. So this is a governor who's touched and tarnished just about every major governmental institution in New York. And, uh, you know, we we completely reject, by the way, that what we call the the our bastard narrative, which is he was a bastard, but he was our bastard. No, he was his own bastard that did things for his own uh, political aggrandizement and his own power. And in the process, we think did a tremendous amount of, of damage to New York and its institutions that are going to take a while to recover from. So how do you think about that process? You know, there obviously have been sort of increasing voices in the legislature opposing him even before the sexual harassment and misconduct scandal really broke because there were the uh, the Democratic legislatures who defeated the members of the Independent Democratic Conference. And you saw, um, you know, some changes in the legislature, at least among Democrats. There were obviously Republican voices that, that have opposed him all along. But when you have this culture in government that, of course, it also includes uh, the state legislature, where we've seen a number of legislative leaders wind up in prison. How do you think about sort of a transition from a government uh, with a culture of misdeeds, corruption, pay to play, lack of transparency, and so on, to a better government? That's a great question, and it is the question because um, it takes a village to make a corrupt state government, and that includes a lot of what we call the big dogs, the power players, and uh, you know, big labor unions, big businesses, big industries, um, and I'll name a few, including the Hospital Association in New York, um, Rebney, the Real Estate Board of New York, big, big players who seem to have bought into the idea that the ends justify the means. And part of changing Albany is changing them and uh, getting them to reduce their cynicism. And that is a heck of a challenge. And as you point to, the state Senate in particular has started changing because of pressure from younger reformists who tend to be uh, progressives from the left of the political spectrum. And the state Senate has really been the uh, 
the place where progress is most uh, likely to happen in, and the state assembly less so because its its leader Carl Hasty is what you could call more traditionally Albany. He's more of a transactional politician. He prefers to do things behind closed doors. He's not a big fan of transparency. He's not a big fan of government accountability measures. And so uh, any governor is going to have to to use bully pulpit and enlist allies in journalism and advocacy to really, really put pressure and, and move some specific things, um, which segues into, you know, how do we do this? And one of the key, uh, key points is having independent ethics watchdog in Albany. In this case, the state uh, relies on the Joint Commission on Public uh, Ethics, J-Cope, which is also nicknamed J-Joke because of its toothlessness. And um, right now there's a constitutional amendment to change how the appointments to that work so it's not dominated by the governor. And that's one of the linchpin ethical changes that has to happen. But really, uh, it has to be, uh, it's going to have to come from interest groups, uh, from nonprofit groups that get state social service contracts that are going to have to start, you know, voicing concerns about the degree of corruption and pay to play. Um, It's going to have to come from some labor unions uh, who have been largely acquiescent or even contributed to the culture of corruption in Albany. And it's going to take a lot of different players wanting to change things and then some specific institutional actions like a new J-Cope um, to, to make that happen. And it's probably going to take more prosecutions by the federal government, uh, like the ones we saw under Preet Bharara uh, some years ago, to really smack these guys around. And people can sometimes obviously have, you know, their eyes glaze over here when we talk about um, process issues. But there's a few um, key process issues that are not so much about, you know, from from where I sit and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, that are not so much about Jacob or federal prosecutors. I'm adding on to what you're saying, not disagreeing with you, but that are sort of basics of better government that the new governor and a sort of fresh start here for the legislature working with a new governor have the opportunity to change. One thing I'm thinking of is the, you know, idea of not using messages of necessity to pass bills without public review when it's really not necessary. Um, Are there things like that, that are on your agenda that would be sort of not that exciting, not that sexy, but just key pieces of good solid government that could be changed here, you know, if there's a new dawn uh, that some would like to see here in New York government? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you, the, uh, Governor Hochul said that she wanted a new era in, in Albany, and, you know, that, that gives us hope. But what the kind of change you're talking about, not using messages of necessity, which allows the governor to um, allow the legislature to pass bills without three days of, of aging in public so that the public can scrutinize them and, and raise concerns. I mean, that's a really good basic one. A lot of this is just how they do day-to-day governance. And unfortunately, uh, today, the legislature is in special session, as you noticed, as we speak. And um, uh Last week, the governor said that she was going to call a special session, but it would be limited only to uh, issues of extending a rent uh, eviction moratorium. And now we see that the agenda includes uh, weeds are 
changes to the open meeting law and possibly other things, which kind of rattles one's confidence in a, in a clean break from the past. But even more so, the irony uh, is that the legislature went straight into private session, into caucus for the actual substantive debate. So they gaveled in on video and now you get a screensaver that says, you know, they're they're not there right now. So the actual public debate on all these issues is occurring in secret. And the kind of thing that the governor has to work on changing and the leaders is not doing this kind of thing. And uh, having just a, a value in transparency and public debate, even though it can be, you know, harder, less expedient and, and sometimes uglier because the public gets to see actual disagreement. And that, that's the, the bare bones of democracy. And that's how the, they will show it uh, every single day. And the governor's really going backwards right now because uh, going straight into secret session uh, with the legislature with an unknown agenda with changes to basic parts of public transparency law, including open meeting law, which have not been seen by the public. Um, that's the kind of thing that makes watchdog groups help, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's stick with that for a minute. In terms of the open meetings law, what's you know what they're what it seems like they're they're doing is uh, working to extend the possibility of of. Um, you know, entities that are having public meetings allowing virtual participation, that would seem generally like a public good. But again, we're talking about the problems with the process of adjusting these these laws on an emergency basis. Yeah, I mean, look, remote participation uh, in public meetings has been super popular with both the public and with local government for obvious reasons. Uh, it's There are a lot of uh, advocacy groups, disabled groups, uh, transit groups that are very grassroots that turn out members who like it a lot. And uh, people attending community board meetings here in New York City like it. So there's a, you know, we like it. But the, the other issue is uh, accountability and whether the governor, government can just, you know, turn the switch and turn you off and the need for some physical presence so that the public can go and see actual human beings. And so that's being called, quote, a hybrid model. And that's probably where things will ultimately end up if they work well. Um, so it's not a terrible thing that they're going to continue remote sessions. It's just that it's disconcerting and, you know, terrible symbolism, frankly, that you're discussing open meetings law behind closed doors. And, and by the way, the public hasn't seen the proposal. So it's not as if they put out, floated some proposal a couple of days ago and said, hey, you know, stakeholder groups of all different kinds. What, what do you think about this? Give us a quick two cents. We, we haven't seen anything. I don't just mean reinvent Albany, but I mean any member of the public. And what's going to happen, of course, is, as you said, business as usual, which is where they wind up deciding on the details. Nobody's really seen them. There is almost a performative debate that happens on the floor as they wind up voting it through. And and that that debate is what should be happening well prior to final bill language being being uh, formed. Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is, is when... Uh, any kind of watchdog group or business or labor union uh, advocates for legislation in normal times, uh, there's a tremendous amount of public uh, exposure to whatever is being proposed. It's often very laborious and tiresome, and you have to work through all kinds of wrangling and cat herding. And um, that's not what Albany 
likes to do. They like to slam dunk things in the, you know, the darkest moments of the night and in secret, which is kind of, you know, what they're doing right now, unfortunately. The transition process from Governor Cuomo to Governor Hochul, um, what has your general um, sense of that been in terms of the sort of just the, the bigger picture machinations of how that's gone and Governor Hochul um, making a few immediate changes and then giving herself a 45 day period to evaluate other, uh, you know, cabinet members and other things in her administration. What's your uh, general assessment of how the transition process has gone so far and the announcements that Governor Hochul has made about it? Well, first first couple hours uh, and her inauguration speech were A++. And, and I think the watchdog groups and many journalists uh, I spoke to were, were thrilled because she implied that she was going to clean house and, uh, you know, bring in new blood and uh, establish a new uh, a new atmosphere and uh, be, be a normal person, a normal governor instead of one reigning by terror. Uh, I'd say that she's gone downhill since then um, because the the 45 day, um, you know, I'm giving myself 45 day uh, thing has really been kind of a cop out. I mean, she hasn't at all uh, shown through action uh, what her priorities are or who she's going to um, keep and, and who's going to go. And there's some key, key. Uh, people that are top Cuomo people who are still there. And I would point in particular to Rob Mejica, who's the state budget director and was was the head uh, head budget director and policy negotiator for the Senate GOP Republicans for about a decade. So he's not just any Republican who happens to be a good uh, numbers guy. He was the main antagonist to the Senate Democrats and representative uh, of the Republicans in three men in a room during the first, you know, six years of the Cuomo administration or so. So if she keeps him around, that's like having the ghost of Cuomo hanging around the second floor. And we're, we're watching that uh, very carefully. Now, we don't have a, you know, we're nonpartisan. Great that she has some knowledgeable Republicans in her administration. We don't have a problem with that. It's more who Mojica was both to Cuomo and to the Senate GOP, and the fact that he epitomizes, in our view, uh, a lot of the sleight of hand and the bad old Albany of, you know, complete cynicism, non-transparency. And to boot, Mahika also sits on more than 30 public authority boards, uh, which is important because public authorities are a branch of government and that we look at and we think are extremely important because they really have limited uh, oversight by the state legislature. They exist off budget and their boards, uh, one of the Cuomo legacies, are, are totally uh, have been subordinated by the governor. This, they, uh, public authorities were created in the uh, late, uh, or pardon me, in the 1930s uh, in New York State. It, it is an innovation for government in the entire world, actually, um, to issue debt and to be run by technocrats, theoretically insulated from um, the day-to-day of politics. And yet Cuomo uh, completely subverted them into a, a tool of the governor's office. And it's really a gigantic sandbox uh, worth that spends tens of billions of dollars that the legislature is not allowed to play in. It's the governor's own own preserve. And the biggest of those is the MTA. 
Yes, where they changed the law to allow said budget director, Robert Mujica, to, to serve on the board. Um, let, let's maybe come back to the MTA in a minute. Sure. But broadly speaking, um, in terms of a state government ethics, good governance agenda, what else, what else are the headlines that's on your the top of your agenda, whether it's immediate, medium term, long term, you get a new governor coming in after one that, as you said, has has presided over this this culture in Albany. Um, what's at the top of that agenda? You mentioned already an overhaul of the uh, of JCOP, uh, the Public Ethics Commission. What else is at the top of the agenda for you? Well, there's the what Hochul can do now stuff. And then there's the big change stuff that might take a couple of years. So uh, on, on the what she can do now stuff, let me just start with that. Um, on Jacob, she there are a couple holdover appointees of Cuomo's. She could replace them immediately with people that are recognized for independence and ethical uh, behavior and uh, start changing the tenor of that body and try to make it at least work better in the short term. So that's something she could do. She could release all the COVID-19 data that the state health department is sitting on uh, per what uh, transparency watchdog groups asked over a year ago, uh, which was the release of 121 data sets as open data so that scientists and journalists and stakeholders, public stakeholders can, can see what's actually happened. And that would be a big break from Cuomo um, and consistent with Hochul, uh, adopting the, the CDC standards for reporting deaths. So, you know, again, cleaning up the mess from Cuomo is enormous because here was a, a governor who was lying about the number of uh, nursing home residents who were killed to the tune of 12,000 people or 15,000, depending on how you want to slice it. And that's incredible. Um, so, uh, so restoring some basic trust that the government is, is being transparent and telling the truth about basic things um, is fundamental. Another thing she could do is, and this is a little wonky, but is to get the July financial plan for the state out, which is one of the most basic transparency documents that the state has, because it's an update on the state spending and money coming in and money going out and where it's going, which really matters right now because of the huge cuts under COVID. And this, that July plan is historically delayed right now. So there's yes, some as very a reminder, very, we're talking here on September 1st. So yep. we're July, August, September. So, so there's, you know, that day-to-day stuff. She could, Mm -hmm. she could um, put to rest concerns about her conflict of interest with Delaware North, where her husband's a senior executive, um, where the secretary, which is the most uh, powerful appointed official in New York state, um, the secretary's husband. So uh, the secretary is Karen Keogh. And her husband, Michael, is a lobbyist for Bolton St. John, which is a very powerful Albany lobbying firm. Who, uh, and that lobbying firm lobbies for Delaware North, who, by the way, has state contracts worth over $100 million with the Thruway Authority and Parks Department. By the way, is currently enmeshed in negotiating new rules uh, with the public uh, gaming commit with the gaming state gaming commission for uh, phone gambling for mobile uh, sports gambling and um, sports betting and gambling, which is in play right now, which is a multi-billion dollar thing. And last but not least is the food service provider for the Buffalo bills and has a big financial stake in a new Buffalo bill stadium, which Hochul, um, 
Kokel's office yesterday told the New York uh, Associated Press they were secretly negotiating um, with um, uh, Terry Pagula, the owner of the Buffalo Bills, over the terms of what could be $700 million in tax dollar subsidies. So those are things that she can do right now. And in particular with that Delaware North um, conflict of interest, we are suggesting that she get uh, independent verification from the attorney general or the comptroller or both that the disclosure and recusal processes that they're putting in place to make sure that she's not uh, wheeling and dealing on behalf of her husband or her husband's company uh, are independently verified. You know, I think she's hoping it goes away and the public forgets about it and the press forgets about it. And and I hope I hope she's not right about that. But this this could easily dog her all the way into um, the June Democratic primary because her surely her opponents are going to seize on that as something that is unfinished business if she doesn't attend to it. And we should note she's she said she's she's bringing in at least uh, an ethics advisor to craft a, a policy. But um, you know I, these are the types of situations where no matter what you design, there's obviously better systems than not. But no matter what you design people making decisions at various levels of administrations know who's connected to what. And it, it just, it becomes, it, it becomes problematic on some level, but there's ways to ensure better practices than others. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's never going to be perfect, but having an independent eye on it from the comptroller or the AG or both, mm-hmm. who by the way, might be rivals for governor and having their offices review the, whatever the plan is and get regular updates on it. That would that would lend tremendously to the credibility because otherwise it's just her or Delaware North saying trust us, right? And you know that's policing yourself, and policing yourself doesn't work so well. We're talking with John Caney, the executive director of Reinvent Albany. Uh, all right, John. So those are some of the immediate things that Governor Hochul could do to improve governance, to create more transparency, a better uh, ethical code for her and her administration right off the start. What are some of the medium, long-term, bigger picture things she should tackle from your point of view? Sure. Um, freedom of information law and how it works and uh, the Committee on Open Government needs to be uh, revitalized and modernized. And uh, it, the system right now is broken. And that's one of the, the fundamental tools for the public and journalists to know what government is up to. And um, right now, New York's getting something like 300,000 FOIL requests a year. And it's completely overwhelmed and bogged down. And, uh, you know, there's massive public frustration about it. So dealing with that and collaboration with the legislature and with stakeholders in a, in a rational way that starts to treat FOIL as a, a government service, like getting a driver's license and, and not as just a, a bunch of case law, um, that would be a good, a, a very, very important thing to, to review and look at. Um, budget transparency and getting the state budget has become more and more important as um, the the time of year when big policy decisions are made, big decisions that have nothing to do with the budget because um, of some old lawsuits, uh, Pataki versus Silver and Silver versus Pataki, that basically allows the governor to put in um, policy measures into uh, what are called Article 7 bills in the budget. And um, that that has to change because the, what's happening now is that there's really two legislative sessions. There's kind of the 
the varsity level one, which is the budget and the big policy changes that go into that. And then there's the JV session that comes afterwards after the budget deal is done um, when you have less important bills. And the problem with the budget is that the governor has way too much power uh, under the current system over the legislature. And it's, it's constitutionally out of, out of whack in New York. And that's, that was really the result of a uh, hundred years of, of reforms to give the governor more and more power to counteract the scurvy and, and, and bad natured legislature. But the pendulum probably needs to swing back a bit. So working on budget transparency and uh, reducing the um, Article 7 I mean, that's that's like asking a governor to unilaterally disarm, but mm. it's possible that she could get other things from the legislature. I would say this, though. I mean, uh, Governor Hochul faces, uh, you know, primary vote in June of 2022. It's September of 2021. She has barely any time to do anything. So her budget is going to be her main product because it's um, that it's going to be where she gets big policy changes in. And it's going to and so she's not going to be able to tend to that unless she gets reelected. And so this is going to be a huge rush for her. And um, there is really no medium term or long term for Kathy Hochul because she's she's a short term governor unless she gets reelected. Well, and, and, you know, to your point, there is a legislature that can push on some of these things that could exert its its leverage on her, especially now that there's a new governor who wants to wants to be elected in her own right to a term as governor, as you said, through the June primary followed by the general election next year. So those dynamics will be quite interesting. The executive budget you mentioned is due in January. So we're a few months away from from Kathy Hochul really having that one enormous shot at, at um, you know, instituting her imprint on things before she faces voters and and the next day budget due by April 1st of next year, of course, a couple of months before that June primary of next year. Um, let's let's. We're, we're in our last few minutes here, John, but let's talk about the MTA because it has been such an issue that reInvent Albany has been focusing on, doing such great work on. Um, you know, we've been happy at Gotham Gazette to publish some op-eds by you and your your team, including Rachel Faust, who's who's focused a lot on this. Mm-hmm. What's what's the sort of essence of what a, a new governor could do at the MTA to improve how the MTA functions and therefore serves the public? Well, there's there's this short term governor and then there's any governor with a full term. Let me separate those. The best thing Hoko could do right now is nothing um, because the MTA has been in tumult because of leadership changes and they have a, uh, a chair and CEO, which is a unified position, who's uh, a business professional, professional real estate manager with and understands capital project management and how to manage big systems. Um, we don't always see eye to eye, but the but is basically a competent person who is not motivated by crazy schemes and, and wants to keep the trains and buses running on time. And so that, you know, that's, that works for us. And, um, that's one of the things, Lieber, of course, Jano Lieber, one of the things that she could do is to freeze the transformation plan or to have it reviewed, um, and have Jano Lieber and his, uh, management team look at that. That was Cuomo's big effort to shake up the MTA, which in our view has turned out to be a complete debacle. Um, and led to a big brain drain uh, from the, you know, senior experience managers who just don't want to be there because of the, the chaos. So just some stability and calm, which are things that Hopeful says she wants to, um, you know, 
transmit as, as cultural governmental values would help the MTA a lot because they've been just rollicked by uh, Cuomo's erraticism and um, erratic behavior and obsession with bizarre things like, you know, bridge lights and, and striped tunnel tiles and all kinds of oddness. And in terms of one of the essentials for the MTA, which is advancing the capital program, re-signaling, you know, the lines, uh, things like that to make subway service more dependable going into the future. Um, it, she needs to just let the MTA leadership run run that, and obviously, um, you know, try to advance the congestion pricing program that would is supposed to bring in revenue that can be bonded to support that program. No, nothing else really that you're you're asking of her at this time. I mean, she look, you know, in in her scarce amount of time in office, um, the the least disruption is the best for the MTA right now. And if she gets reelected, we can have a you know we can have a big discussion about we'll, we'll talk what about the first four years can do. Okay, uh, last couple of things. There there are things on the sort of government reform, good government agenda that include potential changes to how boards of elections work, the implementation of the new state uh, public campaign finance program. There's a redistricting process underway. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to highlight right now? I mean, there's so much we could get into here, but in our last couple of minutes, anything else you want to touch on in terms of sort of whether it's the new governor or other decision makers in state government, you know, things you want to stress that are that are important? Well, the, this is the last uh, gubernatorial election coming up under the old system uh, with no public campaign match. And so work is going on um, slowly but steadily to create that public campaign finance system for New York State. And that's a huge deal. Um, you know, the, right now it's flying below the radar and really hopeful doesn't have to do anything other than not interfere with what's already going on and, and keep funding for that going. Um, the uh, redistricting process, uh, probably, you know, there's public stakeholder groups like ours that support independent redistricting and all the good government groups. And, and, uh, but it's not very popular, frankly, with uh, the Democratic supermajorities in both houses. So, um, you know, we would, we would ask them to allow an independent process to happen. But I mean, this is incredibly, as you know, superheated political era because of Trump and because of the, the bitterness um, with the Republicans nationally, and which is now also uh, infesting New York politics too, upstate. Um, so, you know, that's going to be, we, we expect the Democrats to gerrymander the heck out of it and not be very supportive of the independent process. But, you know, hope, hope that that's not the case, but expect it to be. But as you say, there, you know, these are key issues. The last couple of years have seen, you know, under Cuomo, not so much because it's really the Democrats in the Senate that push them is a huge explosion in voting rights, which has been, you know, a very bright spot in an otherwise pretty um, discouraging government reform uh, landscape. And let me ask you, finally, I want to return to something because this has been something interesting that I've sort of noted. And I tried to push State Senator Michael Gennaris recently in a conversation about this. And it's, it's a, an important theme, I think, which is that even though there's super majorities of Democrats in both houses and they have advanced a lot of election reform, voting reform, as you said, and some other things, there does seem to be a pretty big gap between the assembly and the state Senate in terms of sort of transparency, uh, reform minded work. Um, 
Can you say a little bit more about your assessment of that? Obviously, some of it does go back, as you mentioned, the Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, you know, used to be the the head of the Bronx Democratic County uh, apparatus, you know, and it is, as you said, more of a behind closed doors operator when it comes to politics. But any other thoughts on sort of that imbalance and how to how that log, you know, might be uh, that logjam of sorts might be broken where the Senate has has passed some things like some Jacob reforms, but the assembly hasn't. Yeah, I mean, there another way of looking at it too is just change versus status quo, and the change energy in the Senate is is you know vastly vastly greater than in the assembly, where you tend to have longer serving members uh, who are there who have worked their way up through a supermajority over many many years and are used to that kind of hierarchy. Whereas the Democrats uh, in the state Senate, psychologically, they've come in from the cold, right? They were direct victims of Cuomo's creation of the IDC. And, and, and the biggest victim of that was probably leader Andrew Stewart-Cousins. So they have, they have a chip on their shoulders about change. They want change. And there's sincerity and appetite for that that doesn't exist in the Assembly. And it's by far the biggest um, issue in, for uh, groups that want government reform or really want Albany to change. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll uh, we will be watching that and much more. John Caney, executive director of Reinvent Albany, uh, really appreciate the time and, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me.